Well, as you probably know, it is important to have a plan when you want to accomplish things in your family, in your life, at your work. Many years ago, I didn't have a plan when I decided to rip out the master bath shower at our old house in Bartlett. I saw a problem with the cra- a, a, a big crack in the, the structure of our shower. And so Amy came home one day and I had decimated our shower and our bathroom. I had no plan. And like every good action without a plan, uh, it, it cost us greatly. I didn't count the cost of the repair. I didn't think about the time it would take uh, to replace what I removed, and most importantly, the emotional turmoil on my wife, who didn't get her master bathroom shower back for six months. Uh, plans do make a difference, right? Um, but then faithfulness to a plan is also very key. I mean, we can make plans in our lives, but never follow them. I could have planned for the bathroom. I could have ripped out the shower and, and then completely gone off course with the plan to reinstall what I had taken out. Could have broken the budget, could have uh, made some faulty errors. And, and so it's important that both making a plan and sticking to the plan um, are emphasized in our lives today. And I was thinking this week, Um, how thankful I am as I follow the Lord Jesus Christ for God's plan of salvation and his faithfulness to carry out that plan in my life by sending his son into this world. As Adam said, we are entering uh, this Advent season and I want to take some opportunity this month with the time that I've been given to focus on passages that emphasize the plan of God and redemption. The way in which that God has carried out through history the way of salvation so that we can see his faithfulness and we can hope in him. I'm grateful for his faithfulness. I'm grateful for his providences that are not based on any effort on my part because I fail God time and time again. And yet we serve a God who is faithful because it's, his, it's in his character to fulfill what he promises because he does not change what he decrees will happen. And so this morning, I want us to look at a passage of scripture in Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, which focuses on the hope that we have in Christ for all who believe. And I want us to see this morning how the great plan of God to save sinners from all the nations gives us hope as we live in this messed up, sin-cursed world. Jesus has been revealed, and He, Jesus has brought to fruition the plan that gives us the hope that we need to continually strive forward and move forward in faithfulness, awaiting his return. Now this message comes at the tail end of the book of Romans. Many have said that the book of Romans focuses on the righteousness in Christ alone that we have in Jesus, not in our works, not in our culture. Paul was writing this book or this letter to Uh, the Roman church, which was a mixture of both Jews and Gentiles that had come together. These were once sworn enemies of God. The Jews were looking down the pew and worshiping next to people that they used to consider unclean. The Romans and the Gentiles and the Greeks were worshiping the one true God instead of the many false gods that they had worshiped before. And so in Romans chapter uh, 15 particularly, Paul is focusing on the unity that was necessary for the church in Rome 
his message to them was basically welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you into salvation through faith alone. Now, if you study the book of Romans, you'll see that uh, the first 11 chapters are theologically rich doctrinal chapters, and chapters 12 through 16 are more of the application. And if you study through the book of Romans, you know that Paul really concludes his thoughts with our passage today. This is his closing uh, theological and, and applicable truth, and from verses 13 on through the rest of Romans, it's his conclusion or his benediction, as you would say. So what we're going to read today is Paul really closing his letter, uh, closing his teaching, focusing on the church as being made up of both Jews and Gentiles, focusing on the hope that we both as Jews and Gentiles can have in Christ. Now, you may not consider yourself a Gentile, but you are in the scope of God's word. You weren't raised a cultural Jew. You weren't raised as someone in the nation of Israel. And so to the Jews, you would be considered a pagan or a Gentile. And there's this one key verse this morning that we want to focus our attention on as we look through verses 8 through 13 that says, in him will the Gentiles hope that Jesus Christ is the reason that we Gentiles hope today. See, this message is important for our Advent season as we consider Jesus coming to earth in order that people from every nation can be set free from hopelessness. That this messed up world that, that is full of sin and corruption, that, that, that Jesus is bringing people together into one unified body, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ by repentance and faith, that Jesus came and died for the church, made up of Jews and Greeks, Americans, Europeans, Africans, people from every nation that can come together united and call him Savior and Lord. And so it's important for us today to, to look at this plan that Paul lays forth in verses 8 through 13 or 8 through 12, that there is a plan set in place to hope in Jesus Christ. And in verse 13, Paul gives a simple prayer to hope in Jesus Christ. A plan to hope in Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, and a prayer let me read verses 8 through 13. Paul says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show truthfulness, to show God's truthfulness, in order to conform or to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles to sing and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. And then Paul's simple prayer, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So as we look at the plan to hope in Jesus, we see that Paul first mentions, as he has laid out throughout the book of Romans, that the Jews hope in Christ. That the Jews should hope in Christ alone. That he is the hope for the circumcised. The circumcised meaning Israel. That he is the one who has come, who has been promised to them to come. And that in his coming, Paul tells them in verse 8, that Christ, the Messiah, became a servant. The word became there means he was begotten as a servant. That he was born to serve the circumcised, the Jews. It speaks of the incarnation of Christ 
coming and being born as a humble servant. Not as a military or, or authoritarian leader or dictator, but a, a humble servant who came, born in a lowly manger. And he came to serve, not to be served. And as he came, he, he came to show the truthfulness of God. That all these promises that had been made were fulfilled. As we looked back to Adam and Eve being promised in the garden this morning that Jesus Christ would crush the head of the snake, it was a promise that a Messiah would come and, and, and undo all that sin had corrupted the world or, or in, in the way that the, a sin had corrupted the world. That Jesus coming was the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 verses 3 that in you God tells Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families. All the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so that we know that salvation is a global reaching salvation to all who believe because of Abraham's offspring, Jesus. Who came so that the nations can be saved from sin if they trust in Christ. That we are told that in his incarnation, that God's promises are validated. That the Jewish people should see the Messiah as the very validation that God's word is true. That we can trust God's word. That we can have confidence and that we can have hope. That Jesus proves that God always keeps his word. And if he keeps his word that the son of God would come to die for sin, then we likewise can find all of God's word trustworthy. He tells us in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, why shall they be, why shall they be unified? Look at verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. It's the Word of God that unifies us as believers. Christ has welcomed us as enemies of God, he has come and said, come to, as, as my enemies come and be a part of my family, come and, and sit at my table, enjoy the blessings of the kingdom, even though you defied my name. And Jesus is the validation of that promise as he came. The trustworthiness of the scriptures has come under great attack throughout history. In our day today, it's a constant battle in the church to trust what God's word says. There's always a push from culture to conform God's word to the culture instead of allowing God's word to conform the culture. This is why churches most recently have begun to broaden their wings in conformity and allowing women preachers to lead because they're allowing women's rights to become more of a cultural necessity than the trustworthiness of what God has said about preachers who lead the church. And they're allowing the culture to conform the word of God instead of vice versa. And so we as a church must hold fast to the authoritative word of God. It's survived throughout all of history by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it will continue to never change and never need to be changed. It doesn't need man's help to keep the word of God intact. He calls us simply to value his word above all gold and silver, silver, in this world. 
And that gold and silver in our culture includes holding God's word above the latest cultural or political news of the day. God being Lord of our lives means that his word is our chief authority and it's sufficient to guide us in life and godliness. And so consider that these, this coming of the Lord Jesus, this incarnation into the world of the Messiah, of the promised one, was suppo- supposed to solidify the trust that the Jews should have in the word of God. But as we've been studying through the Gospels, what had happened? Instead, the the Jews had leaned farther and farther away from the Word of God and trusted more in the the tradition of man and and man's interpretation of God's Word that had gone above and beyond what the Word of God even said into legalism, into self-righteousness. And so, church, we must live in consideration of that. We must live in consideration that, that, that holding fast to the word of God and trusting in his word alone is what is necessary for us as believers. For Jesus was the hope for the Jews. And he is also the hope for the Gentiles. Paul is making his case that Unity in this new body of Christ comes through Jesus. He wants the Jews to see that there's been this plan from the beginning for God not just to save the Jews, but to save the Gentiles as well. Because you can imagine the the discrimination that was going on in the church. I mean, Paul speaks about it in verses 14 and 15 about the weaker brother and about the, 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 the love that needs to be shown, not causing brothers and sisters to stumble and welcoming one another. Why was this happening? Well, one, because there was discrimination in the church. There wasn't love. There wasn't looking for the interests of our, of our brothers and sisters in Christ over our own interests. There was not welcoming one another And so Paul says, let me show you that it was God's plan from before eternity passed to not just save the Jews, but to save the Gentiles as well. To graft the Jews and Gentiles together into one unified body so that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so what does Paul do in in this argument that he makes? In verse 9, he wants to show that That Christ became a servant also in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then he quotes four Old Testament passages. Interestingly and wisely, Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, is quoting from the law, the prophets, and the wisdom literature. He quotes from Deuteronomy. He quotes from the Psalms and he quotes from Isaiah. And he does that in a way to convince the Jews of this great redemptive plan of God. And I don't know about you, but I remember early in my Christian walk being amazingly surprised at knowing and understanding that God's salvation has been planned out from eternity past. It was, a, a, it was a difficult struggle for me to, to consider. I remember even having a conversation in a Sunday school class one day that because sin entered the world, sending Jesus was like a plan B for God. It was this great argument that we had that, that, that because Satan had attempted Adam and Eve and sin entered the world and corrupted all these things, then God was scrambling to make a new plan so that Jesus could come and fix everything that man had destroyed. Now, when you think about that, that sure does 
discount and dis, uh, discredit the eternal plan of God. No, church, the Bible teaches that, that in eternity past, God chose Jesus to come and be the Savior for sin before sin ever occurred. That he would create a body of, of believers, both Jews and Gentiles, who would believe and trust in him, which is now what we call the church. God was not calling an audible from the line of scrimmage because sin had, had changed or messed up his plans. No, God had allowed sin so that he could send his son, so he could display the great love of God that was displayed in Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross so that a, a people could be redeemed to live eternity, eternally with him in all glory. And so he's making this case with four quotations from the Old Testament to show them the hope of the Gentiles and the great redemptive plan of God. The first quote is in 2 Samuel chapter 20, from 2 Samuel chapter 22 and Psalm 18 verse 49, both in the words of David and both written as a song of David. In 2 Samuel 22, David is actually singing a song. He's singing a song at the end of his, uh, his rule and reign as king. It's at the end of his ministry for, uh, toward Israel. And it's David crying out, as Paul quotes in verse 9, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. He is recounting all that God has done among the nations. How God had allowed King David to rule over um, pagan nations. To get the, he gave him victory over his enemies. And oftentimes allowing him to declare the power of his God. And Paul is using this to to speak of the Messiah because it was the Messiah who would come into the world and it was the Messiah who would proclaim to the Gentiles of the great glory of God. So as David was singing this in 2 Samuel and, and Psalm 18, the Messiah is the, in the greater fulfillment, is singing this as he came into the earth and proclaimed the power of God and the glory of God among the Gentile people. And there we see Jesus as that promised Messiah, as the one who proclaimed the glory of God and displayed the glory of God in himself among the Gentiles, among the Samaritan woman at the well, among the, the Roman soldiers who some would eventually believe in Jesus as he died upon the cross and the earth shook in agony. Before the Gentile governors and rulers in Jerusalem, for it was the Messiah who proclaimed among the Gentiles of the glory of God. And it's a foreshadowing. It's a foreshadowing of the message of the church that we continue to preach the Lord Jesus as that Messiah and we proclaim him among the nations. This is very much a foreshadowing of the work of the church that will spread throughout the history of the world until Jesus returns, proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. Coincidentally, providentially, the second quotation is also a song. In verse 10 of Romans 15, again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, 
with his people. This is actually also a song. A song sung not by David, a song sung by Moses. Providentially, also at the end of Moses' ministry, as Moses is recounting the power and the majesty of God that was displayed over another pagan and Gentile nation, which is Egypt. There God displayed his glorious power through the salvation of Israel from the bondage of, of Egypt. And God even declared in that situation that he would harden the very heart of Pharaoh so that he could show his glory to that pagan nation. And so Moses is singing this song, recounting the power of God over his enemies, which is, ref which is reflective of the accurate portrayal of the work of Christ who came as the Messiah to do that very same work, to destroy the power of God's enemies, which is not Egypt. It was the power of sin and death when he gave his life as a sacrifice. And so again, Paul is pointing to the celebration, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, See the glory of God manifested among the, the Jewish people. See him and believe in him. Rejoice in the God of Israel, he's saying. For he has displayed and is worthy of your glory and your worship. That's the second quotation. The third is from Psalm 117. It simply says, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. We're not for sure who wrote Psalm 117, speculated, but we do know that Psalm 117 is the shortest chapter in the Bible. And the simple quotation, the simple reference is an eschatological a proclamation that all people should rejoice and praise and, and worship God. Pointing forward, look, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Not praise the Lord, all you Jews. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And we can be reminded of Revelation chapter 5, where it will literally come to fruition that people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will gather around the throne and celebrate Christ. And the last one is probably the most famous, is Isaiah 11. Once again, David or Paul is quoting from the law in Deuteronomy with the song of Moses with the wisdom literature and the two quotations from the book of Psalms and now from the prophets, Isaiah 11. Isaiah 10 and 11 is a solemn two chapters. Isaiah chapter 10 is, is a declaration of the way in which God is using the pagan nations to be a judgment, a rod of judgment against Israel for their rebellion against him. In other words, Isaiah chapter 10 is a, is a, is a prophetic uh, declaration by God through the mouth of Isaiah that God is going to strike down Israel using pagan nations as his tool that will lay waste to the nation because they have been a rebellious and idolatrous nation. And he uses the illustration that Israel is like a forest that is just being destroyed, just being laid to waste. That's in chapter 10. But in chapter 11, the image is continued to chapter 11 with the image of a stump. And from that stump, 
That's a little sprout. That's a little growth that, can, that grows again. And that's considered the very remnant or the root of Jesse that we will see in this passage that will continue to grow. So imagine a, a great forest, a, a, a great lumber company that's just laid waste to a forest and this little bitty sproutling or seedling that's growing out of a stump of a tree as if that tree is starting to grow again. And the Jews would hear that and they would begin to, to see the promises that, that even the prophets were making that even though Israel was going to be judged because of their rebellion, Israel would not be destroyed completely. There would be a remnant of Israel. And that little, that little sprout represented the remnant of Israel, the life that still remained, the purposes that God had for Israel. And throughout those prophecies, that's, that remnant of Israel found its greatest fulfillment in the root of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. So the, per, the, the quotation from Isaiah 11 is this. The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. The Messiah was the root of Jesse. Jesus was that root of Jesse who came in the lineage of David, born in the city of Bethlehem. And he came into this world to rise up and to rule the Gentiles. Now you, you can imagine that the Jews would read this and go, Yes, come Messiah, come Come warrior king and rule over these people that have enslaved us. Rule over these people that have dominated our culture. But this prophecy was not about a Messiah who would rule in that way. He would rule in their hearts. He would rule as a spiritual king. And one day a physical king, an eternal king who would rule over all the nations. And so this points to the Messiah. Other prophets in, or other prophecies in Isaiah point to this as well. The suffering servant in verse 49, chapter 49 says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel? That's the remnant. And he says, I will make you as a light of the nations that my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. So we know the history of Israel. A portion of Israel gets to return back to Jerusalem. They get to rebuild the city. They get to rebuild the walls. They get to rebuild the temple. But were they a light to the nations? No. Did they continue to trust and look to the Messiah and find that fulfillment in Jesus? No. Because the light to the nations was not Israel. The light to the nations was Jesus. He is the fulfillment. He is the reason that the Gentiles hope. Jesus is that Messiah. He's the one that brings redemption to the Jews and those outside of Judaism if people repent and believe upon him alone for that salvation. And so this is the great mission call. That we would be the reason or we would be the, the ones carrying the torch of the church reminding people that the hope that we have in as Gentiles, the hope that we have in Jesus is available to all who believe. That we would take that message and go and make disciples of all nations, reminding people that there is hope in the world outside of our suffering. We do not live in a world of hopelessness, that we can find hope in Christ. And this was the message for Paul to the church. 
He says, you don't have unity and you don't have love for one another because you're, you're discriminating against one another. But see the great plan of God, that his plan was to bring you together, that you both deserve to be in the body of Christ. Because God has welcomed both groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, in order that he may be glorified. And so even in him, the Messiah, the Gentiles will hope. And so Paul's simple prayer is to hope in Jesus. Verse 13 is what many have considered a a prayer wish. He prays that the Romans would be filled with joy and peace. That this filling would come from the God of hope. And that that joy and peace coming from God as the God of hope would come in conjunction with their faith alone. Notice how he calls God the God of hope. Paul has made this argument throughout Romans that hope comes in Christ alone. That God has made a way, sending his son. And we must ask ourselves, what is this hope? What is hope? William Hendricks defines hope as a justifiable expectation. He says it's a solid foundation for our future bliss. It's the mainspring of the believer's courage and stick-to-itiveness. That our hope is an eschatological hope. That God has validated his trustworthiness. And thus we have all the evidence necessary to expect God to do what he promises to do. It's not an abstract hope like a wishful thinking. It's a trust-based hope that God is going to carry forth his plan. And so we have sung today the, the great hope that we have looking forward to a return of Christ when sin is vanquished, when death is no more, when families are not torn apart, when our bodies are not decaying, when our great struggle of sin has ceased. We look forward to that hope. And we can hope today. Hope is not put on hold because of the future. There is a realized hope today that Christ has already forgiven. If you trust in Christ, you are not forgiven in the future. You are forgiven in the, in the present and the future. If you trust in Christ... Sin will be destroyed, but sin and its grip upon you has already been removed. You are no longer slaves, Paul says. You are no longer in bondage. You are free in Christ. You are free to overcome the struggle with sin that you face today. And so that hope that Paul is praying for comes from God. And he has revealed that he is the source of that hope. And that hope is realized in Jesus. But consider this morning the lowercase gods of hope that you might be trusting in. These are the lowercase g gods, they're your idols. That for some insane reason, you and I, we believe that these things will fill our tank of hope. But they leave us actually with greater hopelessness. They have no confident, or they bring no confident expectation for the future. They are what they are known to be temporary. They are temporal. They are of this earth. 
and they fade away. They gratify our flesh, but not our spirit. They're like paper anchors that cannot hold fast our ship in a raging storm. And the Bible tells us that we must live our lives focused upon the things of heaven and not on this earth. And so we must, first of all, identify in our own lives these lower G gods of hope that we are putting our trust in that will constantly disappoint us. We might say, my life would be better if I had this or if this happened. And the truth is, is those things may never happen. Those are promises that you are building your hope upon that God has never promised to occur. So we must trust that God will never leave us or forsake us in those raging storms. That God will never leave us in such a way that he is not undergirding and strengthening us in our weakness with his power to endure to the end. And Jesus displayed that. Matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews says that we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Man, there's a lot of stuff there. <laughs> to summarize, Jesus has accomplished all that's necessary to prove to us that there is nothing in this world that is going to give you the hope that you need that he went into the holy of holies and laid down his own very life as a sacrifice for us so that we can have an eternal hope and rest in him. Paul's prayer continues. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. I mean, that's what Christmas that's what we sing about at Christmas, right? Joy and peace. Jesus is our joy. Jesus is our peace that's spoken of in Scripture. Paul wants the believers to be filled with it. And he's not saying go out into the world and find something that's going to fill you with this joy and peace. He's saying the God of hope will do that. That the God of hope will fill you with joy and peace. It's the same way in which God says that faith is a gift from God, so his joy and his peace is a gift from him. What is this joy and peace? Well, the context of what Paul is saying is that joy and peace must be taken in the context of the redemptive work of Christ. Joy in Christ is a satisfaction and pleasure that we find in the grace that we've received from him. As Gentiles, there was once hostility between us and God and God's Son, the Lord Jesus, removed the wall of hostility when he gave his life upon the cross. So then there is joy in Christ as a person realizes the peace that we have with God and they find their greatest satisfaction in him above all things. That's true eternal peace and joy. We're satisfied in him because we belong to him and nothing can separate the unity that we have with God. Nothing. Jesus says in John 15, he's telling his disciples, guys, as the father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide 
or remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love or abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Whose joy is it? It belongs to the Lord Jesus. It's perfect joy in him, and it is delivered to the saints, and it fills us in a supernatural way. Now be careful. Joy is not happiness. See, happiness is an emotion. Happiness comes and goes. Remember, joy is satisfaction and pleasure in something. And so a supernatural joy is the very supernatural work of the Holy Spirit where we are constantly living in a satisfaction and a pleasure in what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. And then that joy overflows into the, into the world that we live. So when Christ is that anchor and the storm is raging, you have a pleasure and a satisfaction in Christ which does not go away. And people see that. That doesn't mean you're not melancholy and it doesn't mean you're not sad at times, but you're holding tight to Christ. You're you're finding pleasure in him. You're trusting his promises. And you know that there is good that is coming through the great storms. And so what joy you have has been supplied by Christ. Jesus says in John 14, Peace I live with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Same thing. Peace belongs to Christ. It's his. It flows from a perfect peace. And it's given to the saints. So a joy in the Lord and a peace with God is manifested in our hearts and lives. So we are satisfied and we take pleasure in Christ knowing that we are no longer enemies of him but we find our identity in him alone. And this is, this is important, church. This is important for us as, as individuals. This is important for us as Americans. That we do not allow our identity to be found in things of this world. Because that identity even changes. Where we belong in the social economic spectrum will change. If you find value and identity in being rich, you may lose your wealth. And then you will find yourself devalued. You may find your identity in being a parent, a mother, or father. And God may take your children away. And you will will be devalued if you find your identity in those things. Because they are temporary things. Marriages are not permanent. They do not always last. Kids do not always live past their children or past their parents older than their parents jobs are not promised wealth is not a guarantee all these things in this world that we can find our identity in and Jesus says no abide in me trust in me i am the god of hope i will give you my joy and my peace not an earthly peace a supernatural peace that you belong to god that's what is necessary for your spirit, not your flesh. And notice the last thing, and I'll be done. Paul says, may the God of hope fill you with peace, or all joy and peace in believing. 
so that the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. It all comes by faith alone. Same Greek word, in believing. By faith. That somehow connected to this powerful manifestation of God's joy and peace. The only entrance to receive such a joy and a peace is not being in church, is not being religious. It is trusting in Christ alone. He is the only way in which we experience supernatural transformation. And as we trust in him, the more that we trust in him, the more we will experience a greater joy and peace from the Lord. Just as we trust in Jesus Christ initially for salvation, God is continually growing our faith in him. Right? Faith like a mustard seed, right? It's, it's, a, it's a faith that continues to grow. And as we, as a church, as we as a, as a universal church and even as a local church go through trials and tribulations, we, we must continually trust in Christ. And in doing so, our joy and our peace will increase and grow because we are seeing God reveal to us over and over again his faithfulness. We are seeing him show us that we are not alone, that we belong to him. And so there's no doubt that hope and joy and peace is a necessary theme during this holiday season. Heck, it reminds us that even our joy at Christmas is not found in the season itself. Holiday traditions are fun. My family's had a few over the years that we stick to, but they don't bring us lasting joy. Just wait till your family of seven gets the flu and you can't do any of those traditions. Does that ruin Christmas? It shouldn't. Because the joy is in Christ. The satisfaction is in Christ. The reminder that Christ has given us a hope that was brought to us at the cross, that was manifested in a resurrection, and that will one day be revealed in the clouds as Jesus returns. So my prayer for you this morning is to find comfort in these words, to find encouragement from the scriptures, and most of all, if you don't trust in Christ this morning, I encourage you to trust in him today. Allow him to be the sole peace and joy of your life. And turn from trusting in things that simply fade away like last year's Christmas presents. Let's pray.